This is the Law and the Future of War podcast, brought to you from the University of Queensland Law School. Through conversation with experts in technology, law and military affairs, this series explores how international law regulates new military technologies. Open Source Intelligence Developments, Ukraine and Myanmar. This episode is the fourth in our series about accountability in Ukraine, focusing this time on the collection and collation of information and potential evidence using open source intelligence. We're speaking today with a world expert in the skills required of open source intelligence collection, Benjamin Strick. Benjamin is a digital investigator with a background in law, military and technology, specialising in open source intelligence, or OSINT, investigations, influence operations, data and maps. He's known for his contributions to multiple streams of human rights abuse investigations and accountability projects using his online investigation skills, as well as for generating discussion and sharing those skills to democratise OSINT analysis. He is currently the Director of Investigations for the Centre for Information Resilience and was previously an open source investigator with BBC Africa Eye. He is a Bellingcat contributor and co-founder of Ocelli Project. In 2021, he was awarded the Open Source Intelligence Champion of the Year for investment, commitment and contribution to the field. Today, we're going to discuss OSINT in the Ukraine, and then separately, we're going to talk about another accountability project that Ben is involved with as the Director, Myanmar Witness. Ben, thank you so much for joining us. I know you're very busy. You've just got back from Kyiv. So obviously great to have you with us here today. We're recording on the 17th of October and I say that because I think a date stamp for what we're talking about is probably relevant because a lot of what you do is very time specific. But starting from the top, Ben, what is OSINT? <laughs> okay, that's a great question. I could probably spend 45 minutes talking about that. <laughs> so I think in kind of literal terms, OSINT is really that separation of data and intelligence. It's quite a sort of holistic thing. It's gone back for, you know, even pre-technology, pre-internet, if we sort of think about that. And it really sort of builds around those concepts of collection of data from publicly available information. So that can be information online, it can be books, journals, phone books, posters, and then the analysis on top of that, right? So it's a core pillar of intelligence. So if any of your listeners, you know, have worked in this sort of intelligence space, they'll know that there's always an OSINT desk, a signals intelligence desk, a geospatial desk as well. So it's usually thought of as tech space. But more and more in the open world with that sort of creativity, we're seeing things picked up like satellite imagery, analysis on top of that, images, so what can be pulled out of an image and things like that. I think for me in the kind of civilian general sense, the way I describe OSINT is kind of like picking up apples and oranges in a farmyard. That's one step of the way because you probably end up with a bucket of apples and oranges. But the next step, is making a fruit salad out of that, which is the kind of the analysis on top of it. And without that kind of second step, you're basically giving a fire hydrant to someone full of data and there's no kind of analysis on top. So that's probably the way I'd sort of describe it. That's fantastic to give us a bit of a framing about what we're going to talk about. But 
of course, you said it's been around forever, but there's been a significant sort of shift as to how OSINT has been viewed in the community in the last 10 years, or probably the last five years in particular. Is that really just because of the proliferation of social media and information on the internet? Look, I really do think social media has had a massive spur for civilian-based OSINT, right? And this kind of open source investigations. So we've got groups like Bellingcat, who I've been involved with in the past. We've got investigative journalism outfits that are using open source intelligence or investigative techniques. I mean, obviously, predating that, this is quite a sort of a well heavily relied upon aspect for government, for intelligence, for the military as well. But I think now that that's coming into worlds where that's not a trained area, so people aren't trained in open source intelligence, they're just finding videos online or photos online and making their own way with it. That brings up a whole new element of creativity, new techniques and things like that. So it's sort of, you know, I feel like at the moment, maybe military intelligence is picking up some of this stuff that's being done by couch analysts and being like, oh, wow, we could probably use that. <laughs> I guess that's the, the critical part to it, isn't it? You're using publicly available resources, but you're also using publicly available tools, which is probably the difference to what militaries are doing in their intelligence collection space. Do you think that's a key delineation between the military use of intelligence and what the OSINT public community is doing? Yeah, it's an interesting question because it's something we sort of come across a few times, that margin of difference. The military has rigid principles. You know, obviously there's some flexibility in there and there needs to be for this. But with those rigid principles comes elements of, for example, vetting what tools you use. So technology is changing rapidly, week by week. Mm -hmm. You know, new scripts are being developed, new programs are being developed. The military needs to vet those in order for their intelligence analysts to use that. So, for example, if we were to ever have a, a conversation with military intelligence analysts and they're like, hey, you know, what, how did you find this information? We're like, oh, okay, we use this tool. And then their response is, oh, yeah, we can't use that because it's not been allowed. It's not been mm. uh, verified by our Intel team. So it kind of holds them back a bit, but I dare say because of that kind of systematic process, levels of sensitivity with the mix of information that they deal with, because it's not just open source, it's also classified, mm. there's probably requirements for that, right? Yeah, and I guess that's the rub in terms of, from an Australian perspective, we have very strict privacy handling laws when it comes to what the government can hold on individuals, but you as a, a civilian OSINT operator, if we want to call you that. I mean, do you prefer investigator, operator, what title, digital investigator? I think investigator mm. is kind of a good sort of approach, yeah. So as a digital investigator, you have access to pretty much anything anyone's put online about themselves or anything that's been put online that you can readily access. Is that right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, and that's kind of a struggle that government intelligence or law enforcement even have to create a Facebook account and go and maybe save a photo from another account, they've already had to seek permission from someone higher up. For me, I can do that on a nightly basis. So you train people in how to use this online information to do these kinds of digital investigations. And so you've referred to that as the democratization of open source intelligence. Why are you doing that? And what do you mean when you say that? I think it's the reason I use it is because of a double prong approach. So first of all, it's a democratization around the fact that these used to be techniques primarily used by military, by intelligence analysts, and that training was also there as well. So it's quite interesting for when Bellingcat received a lot of scepticism for this, that people were saying, oh, these must be former intelligence analysts that have now left the job and are on Twitter. 
And most of them are self-trained. Mm. There are some people that I've worked with before that do this as a hobby and they flip patties at McDonald's for a living. So there's that kind of aspect of taking these techniques to the world, I think is one thing. Mm-hmm. The second aspect of democratizing these techniques that I sort of want to bring is that it opens it up to a world that's not generally privy to these techniques. So a lot of open source groups have expensive training courses. It's affordable for law enforcement, for intelligence analysts to maybe pay $5,000 per person to attend a workshop in a week. But from people that I've worked with in, say, Sudan, in Libya, in Kenya, in Myanmar as well, they can't afford that whatsoever. So how do they get access to these courses? Even $300 for a one-week course is quite expensive when you're doing it off your own bat. So I think when it comes to open source, the ethos is transparency and publicly available. Mm. So the course should kind of represent that as well. So that's what I mean around that. And it's kind of just bringing that to developing nations, which are often the most important nations that actually need this information. So if we look at India, we look at Sudan as well, we look at Myanmar, these are kind of countries that need these types of techniques to hold the governments to account, Mm. identify wrongdoing and dispel disinformation, essentially. You touch on transparency as one of those key principles about the work that you're doing. And that's interesting because Australia has recently just had one of its key telecommunications providers. Optus has had a massive data breach with everyone's personal data leaked. And it raises in people's minds the idea that they've got all this information out there somewhere in the internet and they don't know how it's going to be used. Is there any part of your work that focuses on educating people about how to protect their own information or what could be done with their information? Yeah, so I mean that hasn't necessarily been a focus of mine, but I'm really happy to see others have picked that up as well. Yeah. And the example you raised is so perfect. My parents, for example, in Australia, you know, I ran through a sort of a password reset workshop for them over a weekend <laughs> once just to say, yeah. hey, your, your password is out there on publicly available websites. So if you go to haveibeenporn.com, you can put your email address and there's their password mm. and that kind of digital literacy. Yeah. And I think we're getting more and more of a sense of that. Mm. The work that I do tracks down essentially war criminals. So if I'm able to do that by people hiding their tracks, people that are not hiding their tracks, someone with bad intention like myself or that does similar work to myself would be able to do something wrong with that, right? And we've seen niche groups pop up over the past two years or even three years around different kinds of open source and how to use that as a defensive technique. So, for example, there's a group of amazing open source bloggers who are now working on teaching young women about when they upload photos to Instagram and Facebook, how that photo can be geolocated to give away your own coordinates to stop stalkers, Mm. right? And that's so important, you know, these kind of double-sided aspects. So it really is a a double-pong approach in that sense. Which brings me to our next part of our conversation, which is talking about how you use open source intelligence information, not for bad purposes, as you you suggested, but for the purposes of accountability, because digital footprints, of course, uh, create information and information can be used for evidence, which is important when we're talking about things like war crimes, but not even getting it to the stage of evidence, just getting it out as information to raise awareness about what people are doing is equally important. But you've done quite a bit of work in terms of two recent projects, one in relation to what you've been doing in Ukraine and then the second in relation to Myanmar. So we'll go to Ukraine first, noting again, 
timestamped this 17th of October and, you know, there's a bit of a build-up, a bit of a build-up, about a 1,000 Russian troops being observed to move into Belarus in the last 24, 48 hours. So similar to the build-up that occurred in February that was being tracked through satellite imagery, could you tell us a little bit about what you've been doing in Ukraine and how that's been influencing the conduct of operations that possibly wouldn't have had this level of intelligence support had it not been for open source analysts like yourself? So I'll go back to the start. So in December and January, we started to see like what we're seeing now, actually, scarily enough, Mm. lots of military vehicles on the backs of trains. So tanks, different artillery systems, different weapon systems, military support and logistics on the backs of trains moving towards the border of Ukraine, so into Western Russia. Russia was saying at the time that these are exercises, and we were sort of thinking it's too much. It's too much for the existing hostility between the two countries. Mm. We started to map this out privately as a way to just identify perhaps, you know, where are these units amassing? Are these exercise places that have been used before, right? Because Russia has training grounds in Western Russia. We started to identify these massive new buildups that are bigger than anything we'd seen before. It was at that point that Russia said, we are not building up units. And that actually, just to not scare anyone, we're going to start turning them away. What we noticed is that more units were coming towards uh, Ukraine. And this was about late January. So we decided to publish that map, make it publicly available, free to the world for every single person to look at, make up their own opinion, give media access to all of the footage and archive every single bit of footage so that it's available offline as well. Through that aspect, if we fast forward to now, so we started with tags on Russian military movements. That was one tag on the map. It was a map with a lot of green pins. Fast forward to now, We've got munitions, mass graves, torture sites, civilian casualties, residential infrastructure damage, hospitals, schools, all these sorts of categories. The map is still publicly available. It has more than 10,000 entries on it. Every single entry is verified. So it's had an analyst go through and geolocate it. So find the coordinates on Google Maps, chronolocate, so identify the time, And that map has been at the backbone of so many outputs, right? So, for example, we've had people from the Ukrainian government contact us saying, we've been using your map. We've had units on the ground saying, we've been using this map to identify where Russian military assets are sitting, firing positions. The map went down at one point when I was flying to the Netherlands and I landed and it had been down for about an hour and people had contacted us saying, we're trying to get our family out of Kherson at the moment, this occupied area. Yeah. Your map is down and we're trying to navigate them around Russian checkpoints. So there was one point where the map had about 2 million views in one week. Hmm. And it's become a kind of central, reliable source for what's happening in Ukraine in a situational awareness to the point where you can zoom into specific locations. I think it's not just about the open source techniques, but making it open source has delivered such benefit to the conflict for humanitarian groups, for governments shaping policy and action Mm. to give them strength in saying, we condemn this, we're going to send more weapons and support to Ukraine, Mm. but also the conflict on the ground and the actors in it. I think 
around that sort of choice, we've had to hold back a lot of information that we've put on the map because we know that Russia is watching as well. Mm. So we've delayed when we upload, for example, when Russia does shelling, we delay when we upload that so that they can't do military strategies such as bracketing to see where their mm. shots fall. Mm. We don't upload videos and photos from filmed by civilians in occupied areas because we know that those people are going to get door knocked and arrested or killed. So it's been a crucial sort of source. And I think making that publicly available has been really core to the success of that. This is an area that has you know, previously been the preserve states or governments as far as this responsibility to provide information to civilians to flee harm or locations where armed conflict is going to impact on them. So fascinating that there is now effectively a, a citizen army doing this, a worldwide you know, there's no geographic limitation on who can engage in this. And equally, on the other side, there's no limitation on who can access the information. And as you mentioned, there's security implications for people who access this information or contribute to this information. So as an organisation, how does that sit with you? If you're going into somewhere like Kiev, you're now a party to this conflict. You're an active member by contributing information that's being used by one side or the other. How does that work from your perspective about partaking in hostilities? Yeah, you're right. It's an interesting question. I think we've been quite aggressive in the work in Ukraine in Mm. keeping the map open, reporting on Russian firing positions, reporting on Russian military movements and not Ukrainian military movements. Yeah. So while we're sort of remaining as unbiased as possible, we're clearly taking a side. Mm. There's a number of aspects upon that because we sort of see the conflict as the Russian invasion. It's very easy to stop the conflict. Russia can just leave, Mm. but also that kind of aspect of territorial sovereignty as well, right? So one country is defending their nation, yeah. you know, and we sort of picture this, you know, a lot of other countries are thinking about what would they do in Ukraine's situation. Mm. We've had conversations around, for example, Australia. What would Australia do in those situations, right? Mm. You would have to expel a number of people that might have already been embedded into Australia in influential positions. You would have to enact territorial sovereignty. What partners would actually come to light with providing air defence systems and things like that? And it's, Mm. it's an interesting strategy to think of. So for us, we sort of think, okay, support the defence side, support the side that is being attacked. Mm. And just through the amount of human rights abuses we have documented, there's a significant amount that we've sort of identified as Russia being responsible. So for us, we sort of feel like we're doing the right thing. For safety terms, our team is obviously at risk, but I think the fact that we're so public about the information, Mm. if we were to be targeted or we were to be fished, the information is kind of already out there. We don't really have closed information. So I dare say our mentality is there's probably much more higher targets on the priority list than us, given Kiev is probably a place with a lot of interesting characters. I just happen to be a a more public one, but definitely not not high on any priority list. And, you know, that's quite helpful for us. Mm. And I think, you know, one of the kind of successes of what we do is the fact that there are a lot of intelligence groups supporting Ukraine, Western intelligence, Mm -hmm. but that information is classified, whereas we probably have, they might have a map as well, a kick-ass map with lots of pins and lots of satellite imagery, but they can't share it with the world because it's classified. So for us, we're able to share this with whoever we want, media, government, groups on the ground, NGOs, 
and we don't have to worry about classification levels. So that's kind of that interesting aspect there. And I guess, as you say, your transparency is is your strength in terms of a defense against being targeted in the fact that it's a hydra. You're not the only person who can access this information. It's there for everybody. So fascinating that that approach to being so open is actually what is an opposite approach to intelligence from what most militaries have is they protect the data, they keep it close hold and they put classifications on it because if it's released or if people access it, then it somehow loses validity or its currency, whereas in your case, it's actually the opposite of that. So I find that (laughs) personally interesting. The other thing that I think is fascinating is you touched on the fact that in this case, because the weight of the international community is pretty clear on this one, the fact that there is an egregious breach of the United Nations Charter, we have the United Nations Secretary General down to every foreign minister pretty much of almost every nation in the world, less, you know, a handful who abstained from voting when it was discussed in the General Assembly saying this is the wrong side of the war, the Ukrainians are defending, so support them. I guess the the difficulty with these OSINT tools is that they're available to everyone, aren't they? So this ability or this information and this training that you have democratised is available to both sides, but that also defeats it being misused, do you think? I, I don't know. It's an interesting sort of paradox, I think. Yeah. I mean, you, you raised such an interesting point there, and this is probably a point that's not as spoken about as much as it should, right? You know, OSINT is obviously for good, but it's a double-edged sword in that it can be used for bad, right? And we've seen a number of examples of that kind of aspect. So some of the sort of examples that we've seen where OSINT has been used is just those simple techniques such as geolocation. Mm. So Ukraine has rules at the moment for journalists and civilians not to film military sites, right? There's a lot of checkpoints in Ukraine. You can't drive down a road without passing 10. You can't film them. You can't show their location. Mm -hmm. You can't show factories and things like that. We had an interesting aspect where we noticed a telegram channel that was scouring the Ukrainian internet, Ukrainian media space for footage of factories. Someone from a state broadcaster had gone in and filmed and interviewed individuals on a tank repair factory in Kiev. Mm. And it's a pro-Russian telegram channel. This pro-Russian telegram channel got together and geolocated, so found the coordinates of it, posted it and said, hey, we should get this place bombed. Um, subsequently it got bombed and a number of civilians as well as Ukrainians, Ukrainian soldiers were killed. Mm. So that goes to show the kind of other side that, yes, this is being used. But we've also noticed the Kremlin itself try to use open source techniques to dispel and discredit some of the kind of claims around human rights abuses. So mm. one of your questions that you sort of led was with Butcher and the human rights incidents that happen in Butcher after that area was occupied by Russian military. Mm. So immediately after the Russian military left Butcha, we saw lots of footage of bodies on the ground, hands zip tied behind their back, executions, right? Yeah. As soon as that footage came out, there was just a wave of disinformation coming out. For example, people trying to say that These were all bodies. These were staged actors just laying on the ground looking dead. Who lay there for a very long time. Yeah, yeah, very long time, right? Looking very, very Mm. uh, dead. The New York Times posted a satellite image of those bodies being there and appearing during Russian occupation. Yeah. That satellite image was by Maxar. So obviously the Kremlin came out saying, oh, Maxar is an American company, the defense contractor. It's part of the disinformation from the West Mm -hmm. and tried to discredit how that image was looking because they said this image was not available on Maxar's website. It was private. So therefore it's fake. 
And they used the, even the Australian consulate of Russia posted about this and New Zealand, the Russian embassy posted about this. They all had this website, which was a fact checking website as well, saying, you know, these events are not real. Here's the proof. They tried to use OSINT to discredit those. It was kind of pulled apart quite easily. So for example, when they viewed Maxar's satellite imagery website, they just forgot to tick display all yeah. uh, to show that satellite image and, and simple things like that, right? Mm. From the top at the Kremlin, they're trying to use debunking OSINT methods to really discredit some of these human rights abuses. And we've seen that even more recently with bodies being pulled out of graves in Ezeom saying that actually, no, these are old bodies from, you know, last year and things like that in trying to use, you know, red boxes on images and things like that to really discredit that. So it's an interesting aspect to see that information space be undermined mm. just through trying to use open source. So we've sort of seen that kind of counter open source counterintelligence there, which is a really quite an interesting aspect. But then, of course, the great thing about OSINT is that you can counter that counterintelligence quite easily because of the flood of information. Yeah. I mean, it's a tough one to keep up with because you constantly feel like you're on the back foot. Mm. I mean, we have, gosh, we have more than 80 people now at our NGO and most of them have spent time on the back foot just countering these kinds of claims and other groups as well. But that's kind of the difference between this conflict and any other conflict that Russia's been involved in, is that their aim is to put out so many mistruths that as a general consensus, when I hop on Twitter, I just don't believe anything because it just creates that air of, holy heck, what the hell do I trust? So we're on the back foot trying to say, actually, there are truths out there. You can believe some of the things you see, and here's what you can believe because it's verified. So... It really brings that aspect of unassumed truths out there. I find the impact of this NGO and civilian agencies, because it's not just you, of course, there's a large number of agencies and and organisations doing this kind of work, their influence on the conduct of this conflict, which is state on state, the first large-scale international island conflict we've seen with set tank battles that we've sort of seen in a long time, and the influence of the third level of actors in their space that isn't even on the ground is fascinating to me because this is new, really. This is probably, as you sort of alluded to before, the first conflict where we're seeing such a significant influence of this kind of media. I mean, of course, when Russia came into Crimea in the first instance, there was the, you know, the metadata for the Russian soldier that gave away his location as being inside the Ukrainian border, which is probably one of the more notorious missteps when it comes to social media, OSINT giving the game away from a military sense. But what is your view on the increasing influence of people like you in armed conflict? So that's a really good question. And I think it comes down to modern warfare and the future of warfare. And I think there's a kind of interesting aspect around that case. So once upon a time in warfare, there used to be the winning of hearts of civilians through propaganda leaflets, right? Modern rallies to revel the civilians to fight for the good cause, to push out to the enemy and things like that. That's kind of the information space warfare. So you have groups, you have boots on the ground with bullets, and then you have groups in this kind of information space with bullets that aren't metal, but are sort of packets of information that are being tactically pushed. Mm. You know, we've seen this for ages since, you know, the dawn of time with government speakers getting on specific radio stations, celebrities coming out and, you know, endorsing these activities. 
And I think what we're now seeing is two developed actors in a space combat not only on the ground but in the information space. Yeah. This is what warfare looks like online. Mm. And if we sort of hark into other aspects or other conflicts, so we have smaller groups, right? So Sudan uprising, pro-democratic groups combating a state. The hearts and minds were won online internationally through Mm. the struggle of Sudanese wanting democracy. In Myanmar now, we have the same thing as well. Pro-democratic civilians who are labelled as terrorists in their own country combating against their government, the junta, and that battle is won on the information space online. In many of these groups, they're not able to win on the ground. They just don't have that support. But online, they're able to impact what happens on the ground through, for example, sanctions, good media reporting about the struggle of those fighters, those civilian fighters. Mm. And that Mm. for Ukraine, that's a perfect weapon right there. Through more and more of this information warfare, we're able to get support. So for example, weapons, air defense systems coming in, financial support, intelligence support. It's important. It's so crucial. And I think this day and age, one could not be one without the other. And that's really that kind of top command level playing field that we have. It's important on the ground as well as it is in the information space, right? And then harking back to, you know, your aims in terms of democratization of OSINT, the idea that something, a system like Starlinks can deliver internet, even if the adversary is trying to block it. It's a pretty fascinating space because I don't think modern militaries have always operated on the idea that they will have the capacity to influence their operations in terms of aerial defence because they can block signals or the fact that they can switch off the internet in an area, whereas that's not the case anymore. It seems, you know, one, because the internet is so ubiquitous, you need it for everything, but also the state isn't the only deliverer of this service anymore. So I think that's another fascinating twist we've seen play out in Ukraine as well. You mentioned Myanmar though, and I would like to pivot the conversation a little bit more to focus on the other prong, I think, of OSINT, which is the idea of digital records being used for accountability. So you had a project called Myanmar Witness. Could you tell us a little bit about that, please? Sure. So Myanmar Witness was started at the beginning of the coup last year. We started this about a month after the coup, after building up the frameworks for it. And essentially, it's a mechanism to document interferences with human rights within the country. Evidently, there's a lack of coverage when it comes to what happens in Myanmar, specifically in the regional areas. So we saw that in the past with Rakhine State. Sadly, we found out retrospectively there was mass genocide committed and thousands of homes and villages burnt down, right? So what we're able to do now is to really systematically track those human rights interferences through almost real-time information by monitoring the social media, by using advanced satellite imagery techniques and things like that, as well as mass mapping that content. At the start of the coup, one of the kind of issues that we had or came across was pro-government groups doing mass reporting on footage that was uploaded online. So if there was a video of a soldier, say, detaining and beating a protester on the ground, on Telegram, there would be specific groups that would say, let's get together and mass report this footage to get this content offline. Of course, Facebook and YouTube and Twitter would kick in, remove the content, and there you go. There's essentially evidence of a human rights abuse being committed wiped away. It's similar to the sort of analogy that I like to use of someone being stabbed in a street. And then before the police arrive to the crime scene, someone else comes in and picks up the knife, wipes away the scene and cleans up the evidence. 
So for us, we worked on a system to document that content, capture it, keep it online and offline. And when I say online, privately, to make sure that it was available for justice and accountability mechanisms to use that content in research later. We built up a framework that was similar to a tech stack, which was developed by the OPCW, so the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons Office, in capturing the source of the information. So exactly where it was uploaded, exactly when it was uploaded, proof of that upload, so a simple screenshot to show that it's on Twitter or Facebook, so that perhaps one day, if that was to be used in a court environment, the reliability of that evidence wouldn't necessarily be in question because they knew it was on this time at this location and it was uploaded here with that source code. We've worked on sort of preserving that evidence, so locking that evidence like a mosquito trapped in amber so that it can be used in 5, 10, 15 or 20 years' time and specifically dealing with international cases. If we look at what happened to the Rohingya, that's still going through the International Criminal Court at the moment. So we don't expect to sort of see results from this within, you know, at least 10 years. Yeah. But what we do know is that that evidence has been caught properly. I'll go into the democratisation of that as well. So with all the projects that we do, we have 50% international experts and 50% people from the country. And we avoid the kind of whole parachuting in and doing one quick session and then buggering off. I will probably retire out of out of absolute tiredness one day, and many of us from Myanmar Witness will, but what we have is the first team of open source investigative Burmese analysts. They run training workshops now in Burmese mm. on open source. Prior to February last year, they had never known anything about open source. You know, many of them were yeah. wanting to be teachers or nurses or engineers or doctors, and now they're documenting human rights abuses using OSINT, right? So they'll probably go on to run the organization to follow that through so that eventually that evidence will be used in a judicial environment. And I think that's kind of that double-edged sword. And we've seen a lot of success through that project with the combination of those two. It's really interesting because you're collecting such a large database that you know one of the principles of criminal prosecution is, of course, disclosure in terms of the right to a fair trial for someone who's committed this mm. atrocity. So this database is one of many. So a problem I foresee in these kinds of trials is there's the suggestion that there's exculpatory evidence or evidence out there that someone says would demonstrate that they're not guilty of an offence and it's locked in someone's database because there is so much data out there. So how do you work with your verification processes and how, how do you actually demonstrate that you've captured everything that was there in that particular situation or is that just an impossibility? Look, it's difficult because what we capture is content online. Since about three to four months into the conflict, we had to set up a submission form because we noticed that people were scared of uploading footage Mm -hmm. so they could still send in footage. Because of the team that we have, so we have about 30, just over 30 investigators on that, we've remained very much unbiased. So unlike the Ukraine conflict where we're obviously looking at representing or defending one side. For the Myanmar conflict, because it's more of a judicial aspect, we're remaining quite unbiased in the sense that we're collecting evidence from both sides of the conflict. So we do collect evidence of PDF attacks, so PDF pro-democratic militia against the government as well as the government as well. And I mean, this goes into your question around that because Some people would say, well, why are you collecting pro-democratic activities and attacks? 
but it's important to show that chain of causation of events, right? So, for example, if a small skirmish happens between the government and pro-democratic militia, where pro-democratic militia launched an attack against a base, it's important to document that because that can often snowball into the government coming back and burning down the entire place. And we've seen that more than 100 times since September last year alone. Yeah. And so that kind of both sides of the conflict is quite important for us. But we do realise that there are gaps in evidence where there might just be something that happened on the ground that we're unsure of. So by documenting case after case after case, Eventually, we have certain cases that are so strong, that are so well put together. And we support the independent monitoring mechanism, so IIIM, the UN Security Council and other justice and accountability mechanisms to work on those. Obviously, those are getting multiple packets of data sent to them as well. But through our analysis, we're able to send not only the data, but the framework that we have on collecting that data and the analysis on top of it, right? So going back to that importance of OSINT, it's the analysis on top of that. And we've had a number of successes with the cases we've been able to document with a full chain of events, both showing links from the other side, so causation, but then also that full understanding of what happened on the ground through private and open source material. Yeah, it's really interesting because, of course, I mean, you're not the prosecutor. You don't have to build the whole prosecution case and you would hope that when that happens, there's access to witnesses on the ground. But that also sort of touches on the idea of data fidelity and privacy. Mm. And you've mentioned you've got this, this mosquito in amber that you're keeping online, offline when you collect all this information. So obviously that's quite a significant resource. So do you have your own servers? And how much, obviously you might not want to talk about that publicly, but how does that work for you guys? Yeah. So, I mean, that's almost a whole unspoken subject on its own. The OSINT field has definitely grown and developed, but the good note keeping field is probably less attractive to some people, but I would say even more important. As every lawyer listening to you will say, to keep the records, record everything and then record it yeah. a second time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, literally. I think we really focus on almost hiring accountants or accountant types and the bean counter and, and lawyer types to really do good note taking on where we capture and how we capture but also something that we call data shepherds. So people that manage the flock, keep the sheep in line, keep them all safe, keep them all healthy and that sort of thing. So I think, you know, having those dedicated people has been quite useful for us in managing that data, but also transporting that data to mechanisms. So rather than just forwarding an email with 20 gigabytes, which is not even possible, you know, we have specific shuttles that we can push data through to do that. And I think having an understanding of those kind of basic OSINT principles for judicial aspects. So first of all, knowing that we are not the court, <laughs> we will never replace any judicial atmosphere. And whenever anyone says, do we have evidence on war crimes? No, we don't. <laughs> we have information mm. that may support war crimes or intelligence that might support it. So I think that's a lot of people sort of come to us with aspects of saying, hey, can we get training to do war crimes prosecutions? It's like, well... No, <laughs> because you're not a court. Mm. But I think that understanding of you are providing a cake, which is an investigation or a report, but you're also providing a recipe, which is a framework, and the ingredients so that groups like the IIIM or the ICC mm. can see the product of a cake, but they've also got the ingredients in the recipe so that they can replicate it themselves. 
And I think that's where the strength of open source comes in. That's how we've been very successful. One of the niche aspects, and I think this is a developing area, is around hashing data. So it's widely spoken in the kind of tech legal atmosphere around the value of hashing information upon capture. Mm. So it gives it like a serial number, right? If I was to put a smiley face or an emoji or cut the video, then that hash value is different to what it originally was. So that's been quite useful. And we've had contact with a number of justice and accountability mechanisms that have been able to go back through our hashing and have a look and see, oh, okay, yeah, I can see that that has not changed. It's been preserved. We use a public, well, I call it a blockchain, but it's actually Twitter. We use Twitter to post our hash values. Mm -hmm. So it's publicly available to any court system. And that kind of just refers back to that transparency. So that they're going to use a video or photo as evidence in 10 years time. They can plug that hash value in and see, oh, okay, back in March 2021, when Ben captured that video, that was the same hash value. So it's not being edited. And it's just small pieces of jigsaw puzzle like that, that add value to the integrity of a database. I don't think it's enough these days to just have a Google spreadsheet with a couple of links. You've really got to have a framework, a methodology, and a proper system to deliver that cake as well as the recipe and ingredients to a court. I find that really interesting because of that verification aspect. A lot of discussion online, you know, just generally about the idea of deep fakes and the ability to readily defeat anything that's on the internet by being able to augment or adjust information. But of course, there are tools to counter any of those adjustments. The ability to verify if pixels have been changed in photographs and those kinds of tools are out there, which I'm sure is something that's part of your toolkit as a OSINT analyst. But the idea that you're date stamping stuff to be able to come back to in 10, 20 years' time is also interesting because I think the question in 20 years' time about trying to look for those needles in the haystack is going to be another challenge, a future challenge, I think, for prosecutors. But having them actually bundled by someone at the time is also quite useful. So you've talked about some of the successes in your Myanmar Witness Project so far. Have you got any specific examples you could give us? Yeah, so... I think there's two really good examples that I've kind of got, and these aren't necessarily for the judicial environment, but they have been used by justice and accountability mechanisms to focus. So again, getting a kind of situational awareness of everything that happens in a specific conflict allows you to pull out the microscope and zoom in on one specific event. Something we've been working on very heavily with part of our team is documenting the use of fires in Myanmar, specifically in the north. So we've obviously had evidence of that from Rakhine State between 2017 and 2019 with the clearance operations waged by the junta there, the military. And we've documented very similar aspects happening in the north since September last year. Even between September and May, we've had more than 200 villages documented as being destroyed by the use of fire. So that's been quite interesting for us because Justice and accountability mechanisms love to work on a thematic process. Has there been something that's widespread trend to show that there's been an order from the top to carry something out? Through a number of those villages being burnt down, we haven't been able to document everything, but there are a number, at least several cases, where we've been able to develop full chains of causation, identifying units, culpability, and then identifying that commander at the top, right, to show that actually this is an operation from the top. So I think that's something quite useful that we've been able to do. But to show the flip side of open source, a really interesting case that we worked on was around arms shipments, which goes to show the use of OSINT for sanctions. 
So we identified back in March last year, cargo being unloaded from a plane in Yangon airport. And this was quite interesting because at the time, the Chinese embassy said that this was crayfish in freezers. <laughs> Definitely wasn't. We were able to trace back some of those flights. And I think the question from people was, where on earth were these things coming from? They look like rocket cases. No one had a clue where they were coming from. So we were able to use flight tracking services like Flight Radar and other sites to trace back these flights to northeast Egypt and then they were transported from Serbia. So these lights were coming from Serbia via northeast Egypt. It was an interesting aspect to look at because at the time the Serbian government was saying that no, we weren't sending any naughty things to Myanmar whatsoever. So we worked with a local journalist outfit to do a freedom of information request, which is closed, open source, but when it's out, it's public. And we're able to identify that actually the Serbian government had granted export licenses for rockets to Myanmar after the coup. So this really put Serbia in an uncomfortable position where they said that they hadn't done anything but then they actually had done something. At the time, the UK government was having conversations with them, but couldn't share any information with Serbia in that conversation because it was classified information. <laughs> Got their wrist tied there. So we were able to provide them with this report and they were able to say, okay, Serbia, actually we've got physical proof. Serbia came out saying we won't send any more arms to Myanmar. And I think that shows the strength of open source. It's not classified. It's not secret. And there are so many indirect aspects that can really help happen for justice and accountability, as well as that kind of 10, 15 years time, the immediate accountability as well. That's really impressive example because accountability, of course, coming from a lawyer is focused on things like judicial mechanisms and focused on the prosecution and using that translation, as you mentioned before, of information to evidence, as opposed to the other significant influence of accountability, which is, of course, that political and diplomatic pressure that you're talking about there. Fantastic example, which also then leads into the thought about that, the comments you're making about systemic abuses being something that's readily achievable when you've got trends over time using publicly available information. Because as we know, most war crimes have a higher threshold in terms of what the ICC is going to look at. They have a gravity threshold. Anything related to crimes against humanity or genocide needs a systematic approach by the people who are undertaking those acts, which is obviously a strength in how OSINT can be used. The other thing that strikes me when you're talking is about how OSINT actors are, are kind of in a way supranational insofar as the ability to reach and influence states outside of governmental processes. So you obviously have a good relationship with the UK government. You can provide them information and say, here, go use this. Here's how we have demonstrated how we have been transparent in finding and using this information. I mean, I feel like that's a fairly novel activity for governments to be relying on this kind of open source intelligence and NGOs for their information to undertake these kinds of traditionally governmental intelligence activities. How have you found that? How do you approach that as an organisation? Yeah, I mean, often we do a lot of work with governments just because this is the right space for it. So mm. I think there are some groups that want to remain independent, open source groups that want to remain independent, and that's absolutely fine. I think, you know, that kind of aspect around independence is a struggle when you're working on justice and accountability. So from my aspect, we work on justice and accountability, which is, you know, something that may happen at a glacial pace in 
5, 10, 15 years time. And that's no fault of the court system whatsoever, but more so just the fact that these things are difficult to get off the ground. Mm. But in the immediate aspect to have impact and a conflict, I find that through advocacy, as well as working on things such as sanctions, measures that can be carried out, so financial measures and support to specific actors really comes from, in some of these cases, Western governments, but also other organisations as well. So obviously the relationship, and especially in those examples of Ukraine and Myanmar, have been really with the government. A lot of our funding does come from governments as well, because otherwise we're just not able to do much of this work. Mm -hmm. There's a fine line that you have to draw with open source organisations. Either you focus on training or you focus on funding from governments. And one lets you do more investigations. One brings a good investigator time away to provide trainings. But I think there are people on government desks that really want to do good work around sanctions, around shaping efforts, around looking at the direction of conflicts and seeing what trends are happening and how they can assist. So, for example, some conflicts that we worked on in the past, there's been the trend or thematic abuse of sexual gender-based violence. A number of governments and much larger NGOs would want to work with local groups on the ground that focus on supporting victims of sexual Mm -hmm. gender-based violence that focus on documenting sexual gender-based violence in terms of speaking to victims and have experience in that as well. And open source can help shape that opinion and work towards, okay, this is an area that's happening. Therefore, we need to get in early to start supporting those groups in order to do the good work in the future that's required with the victims of some of those abuses. So I think it's an interesting space to be in, but I definitely think we don't rule out working with governments just because they're such an important actor in this space. So if you were to fast forward five to 10 years, where do you see the role of OSINT in the future? Oh my God, you cannot even ask that. Um, (laughs) I thought I'd I'd end on a tricky question. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's so unpredictable. Mm. I think we're obviously going to see something more formalised in terms of maybe some sort of trademark or verification stamp of open source uh, communities. I think some NGOs are definitely pushing for that. I think there is a call for that, but there's not a call for that because I think there's a lot of strength in the creativity and flexibility of open source. But at the same time, in order to standardize best practices around ethics, for example, Mm. so if there is a video of Ukrainian soldiers who are filming themselves as they are being killed, open source units would probably, I'd advise them not to post that because Mm. their children, their partners are going to see that on Twitter before they're even notified and just be shocked saying, shit, that's my husband or that's my partner or that's my dad. Yeah, And that's a scary thing. So I think some of these best practices around ethics could be important for bringing that into play. Mm-hmm. The use of open source, I think we're going to see a lot more attacks on the community around undermining the use of open source. So hack and leak operations is something that's really happening more and more mm-hmm. where databases are hacked and leaked. And of course, investigative journalists love it, open source analysts love it. But that is also a type of influence operation as well, because it can't be verified fully that content because it is coming from a secret source Mm -hmm. so a hack and leak is a really good way to have 99% trustworthy and real information but also 1% fake information and allow for probably some senior open source analysts to be really undermined and discredited so I think we'll see more attacks 
on senior open source figures. I know I've had a few where people have reached out to me saying, hey, Ben, you should really post this video. I've got the coordinates for it. I've checked out the video and it's been absolutely fake. Mm. And if anyone was smart enough, like Russia or, or the Myanmar military, they would get me to use that video and then post a screenshot of me posting about it saying you can't trust this Western propagandist. It's yeah. a fake video. So I think we'll see more of that mm-hmm. as the digital warfare space increases. But otherwise, I think it's a rapidly changing space. And I think we're going to see more and more people get into this from the legal side, the corporate side, and obviously the intelligence side as well. It's such a fascinating area. And I'm amazed and impressed about the positive influence that people in this space have been able to have in terms of accountability and transparency for current conflicts in spaces where there just has not been light shone on this kind of activity. So thank you for your efforts. I think people probably don't say thank you to you for what you're doing, but it's really important work. And I think that the yields of that work is going to continue to be realised, as you say, in sort of 10 to 15 years time. If someone was interested in getting into this work or to get smarter on this work, you've got quite a few YouTube clips out there about how to do it. Um, If you had a, a couple of top resources or top tips, what would they be? I think top resources are just to One, I mean, social media platforms are amazing because you can be a user. So the social media platform can use you in the way that they want to use you. So you can upload videos of your cereal or surfing or things like that. But you can also use social media as well. Mm -hmm. And I think using it to break it is a great start to open source, to find vulnerabilities, to identify specific things and see how social media works. Because I mean, most of us spend so much time on it, you know, we should probably know how it works. And that sort of helps to maybe keep your own profile clean, to keep yourself a little bit more private than usual. But also helps with your research, whether you're a lawyer, whether you're an insurance operator, whether you're in corporate law. You know, I think there's a lot of information to be derived from social media platforms. LinkedIn, for example, mm. what's a new merger happening between oil companies? And can you get in there if you're a corporate lawyer? Woohoo. But I think there's other aspects such as I mean, something I often tell junior investigators is just find something you're passionate about, whether it be animal abuse, whether it be deforestation, Mm. or whether it be finding cool things on satellite imagery. You know, something that you're keen about. And there's so many organizations around there that take volunteer open source analysts. I mean, National Child Protection um, Task Force, the NCPTF, takes volunteers to work on identifying where child sex exploitation is actually happening in what countries and often investigate those people posting these images. Europol has a trace and object program which puts up images seen in child sex exploitation videos of t-shirts, of helmets, of hats. One of the ones in my past that I identified was a football sweater from Melbourne of a child wearing that. Mm. So I think find out what you're passionate about and just start hunting online for that information. Give yourself a little case, a little investigation. That's probably the biggest one. I mean, there's a lot of communities popping up as well. There's a number in Australia. Mm-hmm. So I think we have OSINC Combined, which now do hackathons using open source on specific subjects. Mm-hmm. So they're a really cool group. There's a number of other small ones starting up that use OSINT around huge amounts of issues. So yeah, I think that kind of aspect of just 
finding something that you're passionate about, find a little community and try and do some good in the world together. Thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for sharing your experiences. It's really fascinating and I am really interested to see where this goes because, as you say, the future of the OSINT world is going to be pretty unpredictable and pretty wild. So I'm looking forward to seeing the future. And again, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate how busy you are. So thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you so much. This podcast was made by the Law and the Future of War Research Group at the University of Queensland Law School. A full list of episodes and links to additional material, as well as our contact details, are available on our website. Just search for Law and the Future of War. This podcast was recorded on the unceded lands of the Turrbal and Yagara peoples. We pay our respects to their elders past and present.